Bayhills Community Church is pleased to have you join us as we continue our series, Dinner with Jesus. As we look through the New Testament, we find a lot of stories that revolve around food, and in each of those where Jesus is involved, its purpose is to teach us a life lesson. Today, Lead Pastor David Fossil guides us through the story of the woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and hair. He points out that the story is also about a man named Simon, and that the lesson helps us to analyze who we are most like so that we allow the Holy Spirit to jar us a little bit and have us go in the direction God wants for us. Good morning, Bay Hills. Grab your study guide that's in your program and uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 7. That's going to be on page 1035. If you're using one of the church Bibles, I'm not going to put all the verses on the screen today. So just uh, check that out. Page 1035, Luke 7. As you're turning, uh, one of the books that I've been reading kind of as I've been preparing to share with you is this book by a guy called Tim Chester called A Meal with Jesus. And in it, here's what he says. He says in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal at a meal or coming from a meal. Even when Jesus is not eating, references to food abound throughout the gospel. Uh, one of the interesting phrases in the New Testament is the phrase, the son of man. Now that's a phrase, the son of man, that was referring to the coming Messiah, to the coming Savior. It turned out to refer to Jesus, the son of man. And when that phrase is used, it says that the Son of Man is going to do three things. One, the Son of Man will come and give his body as a ransom for many. That's Jesus' purpose. Then it also says the Son of Man will come, has come to seek and save those that are lost. That's his priority. Then it also says the Son of Man will come eating and drinking. Doesn't that strike you as a little strange? Jesus is going to come to die for people's sins. He's going to come to go to the cross. Oh, and also he really likes to eat. And yet that's what we have in the Gospels. And that's the thesis of this study. We're looking at different stories where eating is involved. And Jesus, when he's having a meal, it's not just for the purpose of my stomach is hungry. It's for the purpose of teaching a life lesson. And so we're going to be looking at another story this morning. Now, today's story reminds me a lot of what happened to President Bush back in 1992. This is the first President Bush. He went on a trip to Japan. And while in Japan, they had this big state dinner with all, a lot of politicians and the prime minister, prime minister and President Bush were sitting right next to each other. Now, if you follow politics at all, you might remember what happened at that state dinner. Right in the middle of the dinner, poor President Bush, apparently the sushi didn't set well with him, and he literally leaned over and puked all over the prime minister. It's awesome. You can go on Google and watch it. It's very entertaining. Barbara came behind him and tried to keep it, and no, it was just going everywhere. The best part is afterwards he got up and he was like, hey, go USA, and he shook the guy's hand or something like that. So my point is this. The guy in today's story, one of the main characters in today's story, is going to throw up on Jesus. Not literally, but spiritually, he throws up on Jesus. What he says verbally, verbally what he implies with his attitudes, it's, it's like throwing up on someone. Um, and, and I hope that I do a good job of, of explaining how it comes across um, if you have your Bibles, we're going to read Luke chapter 7, starting in verse 36. Um, now, the title 
in my Bible says Jesus anointed by a sinful woman. And right from the get go, I, I need to make sure you understand this is as much a story about a sinful woman that anoints Jesus as it is about a Pharisee by the name of Simon. And the story is set up to contrast the two. OK, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Now, there's our food that happens right in, in verse one, uh, verse 36, the first verse of the story. It, it, there's two words in here that should catch your attention, and they're the same word. It's the word Pharisee. That should be a red flag that goes up for you, because even by chapter seven of Luke, this is a group of religious leaders who have set as their goal to destroy Jesus. In fact, as best as we can tell, they are already planning and plotting. How are we going to kill him? So right away, there should be a red flag going up. Jesus is invited by essentially someone in the enemy camp for dinner. But Jesus is like, I'm not afraid. I'm going to go eat. Verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life, technically we know that she was a prostitute, she lived a sinful life, she learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. Now, when you and I have people that come over to our home, they sit in our living room or they sit in our back patio, we have a fence, no one else is allowed in. Um, so how is this woman kind of just showing up at the party? What, you almost want to think uh, about what it's like when we have a party for one of our kids out in a park, right? We get a, we get a jumper and we got some uh, grills going. But even if you're part of, of, of the party or not, you can kind of wander close and see what's going on. That's essentially what homes were like back then. So this Pharisee has a dinner party for a, a group of invited guests. But anyone, including this woman, can kind of wander in if they want, which is exactly what she does. Verse 38, as she stood behind Jesus, uh, behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them and poured perfume on them. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, in other words, if he could see the future, if he knew things, he would know who is touching him? That is a sexual word, very, very specifically. Goes in conjunction with this idea that she's a prostitute. And this guy is thinking to himself, if, if he really is who he said he was, he would know who she is. He would know that this person is touching him and she's a sinner. And what kind of woman that she is. Verse 40. Jesus answered him. Now, that's very significant. Simon is just thinking to himself. Jesus reads his thoughts and answers him. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. And Jesus proceeds to tell him a story about money. But it's really about spirituality. And he says this. Imagine two people owed money to a certain money lender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had money to pay him back. So he forgave both debts, the debts of both. Now, which one of them would love him more? Simon replied, I, I suppose the one who had a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. And then he turned toward the woman, but still speaking to Simon, said this. Do you see this woman? I came into your house and you did not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with tears. And she wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. But this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. But she has poured perfume on my feet. 
Therefore, I tell, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, like you, Simon, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. I'm going to show you a couple different images or paintings that have been done of this story. The one that you see on the screen is what 99% of the paintings or lithographs or drawings look like. They focus only on the woman. What I want to, again, point out to you, if you have the study guide, we're going to look at front side and back side. We're going to look at the woman's response and contrast it to Simon's response. Now, here's what I want you to do. I, I could care less if you fill in the blanks or not. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to analyze who am I most like. Am I most like this woman who goes to the feet of Jesus and does this crying routine, perfume routine and whatever that means? Or am I more like Simon, who's kind of standoffish because, well, she is who she is, right? Who are you most like? Evaluate your own attitude and your own response, and then hopefully allow the Holy Spirit to jar us a little bit and, and have us go in the direction God would want. If you see by your study guide, the woman's response, Jesus commends and he approves this response. There's four specific phrases that I want to draw your attention to. Let's put them up on the screen. It, the, the first one, I want to draw your attention to word number one and the tense that is used. Now notice it is past tense. This woman had past tense lived a sinful life. Now, last week, if you were with us, we looked at the uh, and we studied Levi. Levi was a tax collector. But last week's story, Levi was a tax collector in the past tense and he was a tax collector in the present tense. He had not left his job as a tax collector. He was still ripping people off as a tax collector, currently present tense. But that is not the case of this woman. It's very clear in the Hebrew that she had past tense lived, lived a sinful life as a prostitute. Okay, so the idea is if you have a study Bible, you can go right down and you'll see it as one of the notes. What most likely has happened is that this woman has already heard Jesus give some sort of teaching or, or message. She has already repented of her sins. She has already given her life to Jesus Christ. And apparently she has already started to show the difference that Jesus Christ makes in her life, in our lives. Here's the very first point, simple point, but important point that you have to understand. One of the key characteristics and components of followers of Jesus Christ is they have an obvious life change. When we come to Jesus Christ, something changes and people who are close to us can look at us and they go, I can't put a finger on it, but they talk a little different and they act a little different. And their attitude is a little different. They're a little kinder. They're a little nicer. They're a little gentler. They're a little more loving. They're a little more joyful. They're less angry. They're less judgmental. I can't figure it out, but something has changed. Now, you don't live your life trying to impress people around you. But if Jesus really has changed and transformed your soul, there should be obvious change that the rest of us can see. That's the first characteristic that I want to point out. The second thing is this idea that she was weeping. Now, there's another image that I want to point out to you. And, and, and this one really caught my attention because it was the only drawing or painting from all the ones that I kind of looked at real quickly on Google that emphasized the woman's tears. Every other painting, you could more or less maybe see that she had a couple tears. 
But this one, you can see that the artist chooses by the way that they draw it to very intentionally accentuate the tears. Now, why I think this is significant is because the story emphasizes it. This is not a woman who, you know, has one tear go down her cheek. No, she is sobbing and crying to the point that she is wetting the feet of Jesus so much that she has feels the need to dry him off. These are a lot of tears. These are a lot of tears. Now, let, let's just take a step back and ask this question. Why do we cry? Well, we might cry, you know, maybe you were watching a, a, a touching scene in a movie and that may cause us to tear up. Sometimes we cry because we're sad. We go to a funeral and we shed a tear because we've lost a loved one or a friend. Sometimes it's just the opposite. It's not about being sad at all. Sometimes we cry because we're happy, right? We cry because we have a kid. We, we cry when that kid graduates from high school. We cry when they finally move out of the house. You know, we cry when they get married and they have kids. You know, sometimes good things cause us to tear up, right? Sometimes we cry when we're in pain, especially with younger kids. They're riding their bike. They fall off. They scrape their knee. They cry. So there's a bunch of different reasons why we cry. Now, there, it's also true that some of us cry or don't cry because of the differences between us. So, for example, there are gender differences. Uh, I, I, I found this out. I thought it was interesting. The average woman cries 5.3 times a month. The average man cries 1.3 times a month. I happen to cry a lot more. Every time the Cubs win, I will cry. Pro- normally because I'm surprised. But uh, So um, there's a gender difference. There's sometimes personality differences. Have you noticed? Some people cry when they burn the toast. I mean, they just cry over anything. They're just crying. They just, they, you know, they're very emotional people. And then others of us, maybe, maybe you're someone, you could go to a funeral and really love the person who passed. But even in those situations, you really don't cry, right? So sometimes there's personality differences. Sometimes there's cultural differences. Um, I grew up in a culture, I grew up in Spain, where it really isn't that accepted uh, to show emotion in public, especially if you're a man. It's not very macho to cry. And so sometimes just cultural differences uh, create something in us that causes us or don't cause us to cry. There are religious differences. I grew up in a church where we were encouraged to, to connect to God intellectually, but not emotionally. You weren't really supposed to, or even in some cases allowed to show emotion at church. Others of us maybe grew up in churches where you're talking back to the preacher and there's hallelujahs and there's a lot of sharing and right? Sometimes that's that. And by the way, I don't, I don't mind that. You could talk back to me a little bit every once in a while too. But all I'm trying to point out is this. There's differences in, in terms of when we cry, how we cry, so on and so forth. But here's the big point that I want to make. As followers of Jesus Christ, there are times when it is appropriate to have an emotional response to God. Does that make sense? You know, I, uh, Joy, our, our, our uh, worship pastor, he's a good friend of mine and a co-worker. Dave Sauer, the youth pastor, and I, every once in a while will tease him. Um, but actually, it, it's something that I appreciate about when he leads worship. Have you noticed every once in a while, in the middle of a song, he'll start to tear up and start to... Have you noticed that about him? You know, and I'll tease him. He's a big baby. But I actually, I appreciate that because his, what's happening right here accentuates and shows me something that's happening right here. Does that make sense? Now, are, are some of you going, well, are you saying, Pastor, that I got I to gotta cry to be right with Jesus? No, I, I'm not. I, honestly, the emotional response 
It may have nothing to do with your tear ducts. But there better be a flutter going on right here in your spirit and your soul. Because, and if there's not, I don't want you to work it up. I don't want you to, you know, work yourself into an emotional frenzy. All you need to do is this. If you don't have that happening, all you need to do is this. You need to do what this woman did. Take a moment to reflect on your past and what your past is without Jesus. And who you were or what you could have been or where you would have ended up without Jesus. Just think about your past. And then think about your future. Think about what your future is like now that Jesus is in your life. And that alone, contrasting your past without Jesus and your future with Jesus, it can't help but create a little bit of flutter right here in your soul, irrespective of what it does to your tear ducts. But there needs to be more than just an intellectual response to God. There needs to be more than just an offering or financial response to God. There needs to be more than just a, I'm going to volunteer for Jesus response to God. At times, it's appropriate to have an emotional response to God because we are made as emotional beings. It refers to her as having in the past tense a sinful life, as weeping and sobbing over his feet. And then it says she weeps so much that she wiped his feet and then she she kissed his feet. Now, one of the things that I want to point out to you is the idea that if she wiped his feet and the, and the text tells us, how did she wipe his feet? Did she grab a towel? No, she wiped his feet with her hair. Now, to us, that means absolutely nothing because we are Americans living in the Bay Area, Right. But in Jewish culture, what just happened was scandalous. I mean, it just pops off the page and you have to imagine everybody at the dinner party almost losing it. And let me explain why. There was only one type of woman that wore her hair down in that culture. Only one. Prostitutes. Prostitutes. In that culture, the respectable women wore it up in a bun and then and or covered it with with a shawl. The only ones that wore their hair down were prostitutes. It, it was the only way they had to advertise. Hey, this is how I make my living. Now, she's drying his feet. But the point I want to make is this. She doesn't care what the rest of us think of her. She knows who she is today and what she used to be yesterday. And the point that I want to make is very simply this. As followers of Jesus Christ, there comes a point in time where, yes, we make a private decision to embrace him as Savior and Lord. But that private decision must always be accompanied by a public profession of our commitment to him. And my point is she doesn't care who sees her. She doesn't care if they see her cry. She doesn't care if everyone else sees her wiping his feet. She doesn't care. And at some point in time, you shouldn't either care what other people think of you. You need to have be willing publicly at work and at home and at school and in your neighborhoods. You don't have to be a punk about it, but you don't hide that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. You don't hide it, right? Now, you know, it, it's one of, one of the things that confuses me as a pastor. It confounds me is how many Christians um, balk at getting baptized. I don't understand it. In baptism, we'll put a big tank up here because we don't have our own tank. And, you know, we baptize someone and, you know, you're wearing a bathing suit and everybody claps and walks out. They'll go, oh, I'm too embarrassed. You know, I don't, I don't, I'm not good at talking in public and, you know, all that. I don't want to do that. And but you want me to just very simply explain what baptism is? It's basically asking one question. Do you have the guts 
to do publicly what you've already done privately. Privately, you've already said yes to Jesus. Do you have the guts to stand up in front of a fairly nice crowd that's for you, this crowd, and say, I'm willing to publicly acknowledge that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're not, I would suggest you read all the New Testament because there's verses where Jesus says, if you don't acknowledge me publicly to everyone else, I won't acknowledge you to my father. So all I'm saying is you have to take that step. Don't be afraid. It's okay to be afraid. It's okay to be nervous. It means you're taking it seriously. But it's about time that some of you check off. I want to get baptized and let our worship department start processing that and figure out a date we can do that. You see, what this woman is doing and what baptism is, it's the difference between what a football team does in the huddle, what they do on the line of scrimmage. In a huddle, what do they do? They all get together. They all in a circle and they all talk to each other what they would like to do in public. The play they would like to try and run. And then they go out to the line of scrimmage in front of their opposition and in front of a crowd. And now everyone wants to see, do you have the guts and the courage to do publicly what you've already talked about privately? And all I'm saying is that Jesus is commending this woman because she's willing to publicly say, I'm committed to Jesus. I'm committed to him. The, the last thing is this idea that she poured perfume on the feet of Jesus. And, and what I want to just point out to you is that, in, in my opinion, she's making a thoughtful financial commitment to her life as a follower of Jesus Christ. Why do I say thoughtful? Because she has planned in advance to bring this bottle of perfume. In advance. So I hear that Jesus is at a banquet. Oh, I'm going to go see him, but before I do, I'm going to go home. I'm going to get me some Chanel number 10 or whatever. I'm going to go back, right? And I'm going to pour it on his feet. Now, what's interesting is some commentators even make the point that, you know, why do we use cologne and perfume to smell nice? In this case, this could have been part of her profession. Before I go hit the streets, I'm letting my hair down and I'm dabbing some on. Make me some extra cash. The idea, though, is that what she has, this vial of perfume, it's, it's valuable. It, it costs something. And here's someone that goes, you know what? I am willing to take something that I could sell, make some cash on, pay my rent, and instead show my financial commitment to the kingdom. Some of you have heard me tell, it's one of my favorite stories about financial commitment. And these two guys that are they're shipwrecked, they're on this small deserted island, and one of them is stressed, and he's fearful, fearful, and he thinks we're going to die. The other one's just sitting back. He's sitting back under a palm tree, just kind of picking his teeth, you know. He's calm, and the guy's like, why are you so calm? We're going to die. No one knows we're here. The guy goes, don't worry about it. He goes, how can you be so calm? He goes, I make 400 grand a year. He goes, what does that matter? We're on a deserted island. No one knows who's here. It doesn't matter how much you make a year. He goes, no, no, you don't understand. I make 400000 a year and I tithe to my church. I give 10% of my income to the church. Trust me, my pastor will find us. <laughs> you know, those of you that know me, uh, well, you'll know, I, I don't really stress over our finances. We have it in the program for you to see every week. Um, I really don't stress about it. I kind of have this perspective of um, whatever we get, 
That's what we'll invest in the kingdom. And it's a little bit less than what we hoped for and planned, then we won't do as much. And if it's a little more, then we'll do a little bit more for the kingdom. I don't really stress about it. What I need you to know, though, is that as important as your financial commitment is to a local church, and it is, it makes a difference, it's even more important to God. Do you realize the New Testament identifies your financial commitment as one of the key maturity signs of followers of Jesus Christ? You want to know the only time I check the books? It's before we hire someone and before we ask them to be on our elder board. That's the only time. And if they are not financially committed, they do not get on the board. End of story. If at any point in time, any staff member or board member stops tithing, it's over. It's done. Just that simple. Why? Because the Bible says it is the key contributing factor to identify your commitment to him. A couple years ago, I saw this bumper sticker. I was in Texas, so this gives you some perspective. Um, a lot of Christians there is what I mean by that. It, it said this. It said, tithe if you love Jesus, anybody can honk. I thought it was kind of funny. Tithe if you love Jesus, anybody can honk. And, and I thought that was funny. And, you know, but then I drove away and I said, thought to myself, you know, I actually don't believe that. I don't believe it. I actually don't believe how much you love Jesus has anything to do with whether you love it, you tithe or not. You know why I say that? I know many Christians, I have many friends that genuinely love Jesus. There's no doubt they believe that Jesus was the Son of God and they genuinely love him. But they don't tithe. There's not a correlation between the two. You want to know what the correlation is? Whether you tithe or not is not based upon whether you love him. It's based upon whether you trust him. That's it. What the Bible says God says to you, trust me, do this tithe and I will take care of you. And whether you tithe or not is very simply based upon, do you believe him or don't you believe him? Do you trust him or don't you trust him? And as your pastor who honestly could care less about what we get in the budget or not. I'm aware of it. I'm more interested in the maturity of your soul. And to so many of you, I want to say, take that step. Try it for three months and see what happens, not only to your trust factor, your faith factor. See what he does financially for you and how he takes care of you one way or the other. Big picture, woman's response to Jesus. There's an obvious life change. There's an appropriate emotional response. There's a public profession of love. And then there's a thoughtful financial commitment. Now, let's look at the flip side and let's look at Simon. Four phrases that I want to point out to you. The first is this idea in verse 39. He thinks to himself, the text says he says to himself, she's a sinner. Literally, the idea is he's thinking to himself, oh, my goodness, she's a common whore. That's literally what's going on in his mind. And he's looking upon this woman with contempt and with disapproval and with judgment. Oh my goodness gracious, I can't believe Jesus is even letting her come close to him, let alone touch him. I told you, I got a little carried away with looking at different pictures, right? Um, this is one of the few pictures and paintings of this, of this story where it shows more than just the woman. Now, 
It's inaccurate in the sense that they sat at a table. They didn't sit at a table in those days. They more reclined on the floor with a couple pillows. But why I show it to you is because it's one of the few that show something more than the woman and the feet of Jesus. They actually show some of the other dinner guests. And one of those is Simon. Now, I'm not sure who it is, but I'm guessing it's the guy on the far right that's dressed like a priest. Now, one thing I want you to notice, I noticed, he's really short. Now, I don't know why that caught my head, but he's a short dude. Uh, but the other thing, you see what he's doing with his hands? See, I, I'm so holy. I'm always praying. I'm so pure, especially compared to her. You know, one of the things that God doesn't really take kindly is when we look down on other people. Trust me, he, he's going to do his own thing judging. And I'm not saying you ignore sin, but it's this idea of looking contemptuously at other people and with disapproval and, and thinking that, that you and I are, are all that. Jesus, it's almost like he, he knows, okay, Simon, you want to go at it? Let's go. And, and you have now this next phrase, neither had any money. What is that all about? Well, he goes into this story about two people that owe money. One person owes $10,000. Another person owes $100,000. And they both owe it. Now, the person that owes $100,000, he's not talking about money. He's talking about what you and I technically owe God. It's because they've sinned so much, right? And the woman represents the $100,000. she has got a lot to pay back. And the other one is probably you, Simon. Yeah, you didn't screw up as much as her. You only owe God $10,000. But the bottom line is neither of us have enough in our spiritual bank account to pay God. Let's put the next slide up here. Here's this idea. It's this idea that he is blind to his own spiritual bankruptcy. You're right. She owes God more than you. Okay? Because she messed up more than you. But you can't pay God because you are spiritually broke. I want you to turn to the person next. You look them in the eye and say, you're broke. Go ahead and say that to him. It's going to feel good. Say that. Say that to the person next. to you. Even if you don't know him, you're broke. Okay. Now bring it back. Last week, I told you to turn to the person next to you and tell them you're sick. Some of you got out of control. I had to do counseling between couples after that. It didn't go well. This week, you want, I want you to turn and say you're broke. Now, a few of you, and I saw you, you're too cool to participate with the pastor. And that's fine, as long as you still know it's true. I'm just having a little fun with that. You are spiritually sick. And you're spiritually broke. And I don't say that to put you down. I say that to build you up because there is a doctor and a financial manager called Jesus that can pull you out. But Simon can't see it. And Simon doesn't believe it. And it's what gets him in trouble. You see, sin isn't only dangerous, it's deadly. 
And if you don't do something about your sin, it'll kill you in the afterlife and you don't get to spend an eternity with God. But even if you do accept Jesus as your personal savior and you take care of what happens to you in the afterlife, it can still kill you today. It can kill your finances. It can kill your marriage. It can kill your friendships. It can kill your body. It could still kill you today. It's incredibly dangerous. It's incredibly dangerous. Never be blinded to the power and the destructiveness of sin. He shows contempt to someone else. He's blind to his his own spiritual bankruptcy. And then there's this phrase. Jesus says to him, you gave me no water. You gave me no kiss. You gave me no oil. In other words, he has this cavalier attitude toward Jesus. You go, what are you talking about? Well, what do you do when you invite invite a guest to your home? Hey, come over at 630. We're going to have some dinner. You know, I'm going to make some spaghetti or whatever. Right. So, you know, you're looking at your watch. It's, It's 625. So, you know, they're coming. Right. So 628, 632. Okay, they're going to probably try and find parking or something. And then at 635, you hear the doorbell ring. What do you do? Do you just look at the door and go, come in? No. If you're hospitable, you'll get up. You'll open the door. Depending how well you know them, you'll shake their hand. You'll give them a kiss. If they're a family member, you maybe you give them a kiss on the cheek. You bring them in. If it's cold outside, you have them take their, you take, here, let me take your jacket. Let me take your purse. I'll put it in the back room. We'll leave it here. Hey, go ahead. Have a seat. No, have a, can I get you a glass of water, something to drink? The food's almost ready. That's what we do in our culture to be hospitable. In their culture, they did three things. Water, kiss, oil. The water was not because they were thirsty. The water was a basin of water. And it was this idea that everybody wore sandals and there weren't paved roads or sidewalks. It was all dirt. So anytime you went anywhere, your feet were nasty. Now, if you're going to sit down for dinner or literally lay down for dinner, your feet are in my face and my feet are in someone else's face. So I'm going to give you a bowl to wash your feet. If you, you or I had servants, the lowest servant on the totem pole would actually help wash the feet and dry for you. And Jesus says, you, do you realize you did nothing to help me wash my feet? No water. And yet she washed my feet with her tears. You didn't give me a kiss. Nothing. Not a hello. Not a good to have you here. And again, now you go back to verse one. He's a Pharisee. There's probably something else going on here. This other one is a little strange to us. What about this oil? You never, you put any oil in my head. Think aloe vera. That's the best way to understand it. What is aloe vera? Aloe vera is what you put on your skin if you get a little bit of a sunburn. You see, that part of the world, the sun is very, very strong. They're not walking around with, with giant's hats or A's hats. So when you walk around, the sun's beating on your head. And when you go to someone's house, they don't have air conditioning or fans. They're like, here, put your hand out. Let me give you a little aloe vera. And you're like, Oh, that feels good. No water, no kiss, no oil. This, this, this Pharisee called Simon has a, a cavalier attitude toward Jesus. Whatever. Whatever. The last is this idea. He, he, he asks him, who, who loves more? And Simon knows the answer. The one who loves more is the one who's been forgiven more. But in Simon's mind, I've been forgiven little. You know what? Yeah, you're right. She has a lot to ask for forgiveness. But as I'm thinking about my life, I, I can't really think of anything to ask for forgiveness. I mean, there was that one thing last year that I probably shouldn't have done, but 
Yeah, I don't really have anything to ask for forgiveness. You know, now that I think about it, my synagogue is really lucky to have me. My church, Bay Hills, they're really lucky to have me. I mean, I'm such a prayer warrior. I'm such a pure saint of God. My small group, they're so fortunate to have me. I mean, we sit around in the living room. There are a bunch of thick people that don't know the Bible, but I help them understand the word of God. Right? My family, they're fortunate to have me. And it's this prideful self-assessment about how important he thinks he is. How important he thinks he is. I'm going to wrap up and read a story to you um, by a pastor by the name of John Ortberg. He was made uh, or came really to be known by many people as a teaching pastor at Willow Creek, but now is a pastor just a little ways away at Menlo Park Presbyterian. And he writes this story. He says, years ago, when we first started out uh, as a family, my wife and I traded in our old Volkswagen Super Beetle for our first piece of furniture, a mauve sofa. The man at the furniture store warned us not to get it when he found out that we had small children. You don't want a, want a mauve sofa, he advised. Get something the color of dirt. <laughs> but with the naive optimism of young parenthood, we said, we know how to handle our children. Give us a mauve sofa. From that moment on, everyone knew the number one rule in the house. Don't sit on the mauve sofa. Don't touch the mauve sofa. Don't play around the mauve sofa. Don't eat on it. Don't breathe on it. Don't look at it. Or don't think about the mauve sofa. It was like the forbidden tree in the Garden of Eden. On every other chair in the house, you may freely sit. But upon this sofa, the mauve sofa, you may not sit. For in the day you sit thereupon, you shall surely die. And then came the fall. One day there appeared on the mauve sofa a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. So my wife, who had chosen the mauve sofa and loved and adored it, lined up the three children in front of it. Laura, age four, Mallory, two and a half, and Johnny, six months. Do you see that, children? She asked. That's a stain, a red stain, a red jelly stain. The man at the sofa store said it's not coming out, not forever. Do you know how long forever is, children? That's how long we're going to stand here until one of you tells me who put the stain on the mauve sofa. Mallory was the first to break. With trembling lips and tear-filled eyes, she pointed and she said, Laura did it. And then Laura passionately denied ever doing it. Then there was silence. For the longest time, silence. No one said a word. I knew they wouldn't, for they had never seen their mother so upset and angry. I knew they wouldn't because they knew that if they did, they would spend an eternity in the timeout chair. I knew that they wouldn't because I was the one who put the red jelly stain in the sofa and I wasn't saying nothing. Let me just end by saying this. You stain the sofa. If you don't get the analogy, you stained your soul with sin. And if I could break it down, the simplest way to understand the difference between how the woman responds to Jesus and how Simon responds to Jesus is do you have the courage to admit that you've stained your soul? Let's pray. 
as heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I just want you to take a moment and try and again answer that question. Who are you most like? Are you most like the woman who anointed the feet of Jesus and cried at his feet? Or are we most like Simon, who's a little bit prideful in who he is and what he has to contribute? Just take a moment and allow the Holy Spirit to bring conviction or change however you think you need. Heavenly Father, just a simple prayer today. Help us not be like Simon. Help us not think we're all that. We look respectable. We smell respectable. We got respectable jobs and live in respectable neighbors, neighborhoods. Remind us that at one point in time, we had a past. And we may not have had the profession that this woman had, but our sins still stain the soul. And we just want to thank you that because of your shed blood, we have forgiveness. Change us. Make us the kind of people you want us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. It's our hope that today's podcast has enriched your life and answered questions you may have had. If you'd like more information about what was said in this podcast or about Bay Hills Community Church, you can reach us on the Internet at www.bayhills.net. Bay Hills, located in El Sobrante, California, is radically committed to reaching the unchurched in the Bay Area and to developing believers into fully devoted followers of Christ. Thanks again for listening.